Coming up in this episode, Robert Young Pelton is a writer and documentary filmmaker with an amazing ability to figure things out, especially as it relates to terrorism, and then to go find the story. And he now has a theory about what it is that ISIS is actually doing. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with religion. Uh, it's more like Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's, it's, it's a franchised opportunity that once you go to a down-on-its-heels rebel group like Abu Sayyaf or the MILF, you say to them, look, um, we're going to give you 100000 bucks, but we need you to go cut some heads off of Westerners. We need you to make a video and chant, and we need you to edit and send out you know, tweets and every week. And then we're going to set you up in a town, and then we're going to get a percentage of what you make from that town. And we're going to send you trainers. I mean, it's a very sophisticated network. That. Plus, he's found the notorious Lord's Resistance Army leader, Joseph Coney. And much, much more coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Skype with me is my old friend Robert Young Pelton. We haven't spoken in a long time, but he has been one of the most remarkable and prolific writers and researchers uh, in a very long time to grace the journalistic scene. His book called License to Kill chronicled his time with a team of government hired guns during the war on terror in 2003. Since then, he's found himself at the heart of numerous major news stories in the intelligence and terrorism world, from U.S. soldier Bo Bergdahl walking away from its unit into captivity by the Taliban, to the migrant crisis, to ISIS and its so-called caliphate, to the notorious terrorist Joseph Kony of the Lord's Resistance Army. He's a smart, well-connected individual who knows how to navigate the shadowy world of terrorism and is able to make sense of some very disparate details to put them together that even authorities who should know don't. He talks to us today. Like I said, it's been a while since we've spoken, and your latest adventure was two years as a strategic advisor for the Migrant Offshore Aid Station Foundation. And that sounds just like what it is, rescuing people, uh, essentially out on the water, migrants, refugees trying to get somewhere because the place they're living in or existing in is in, in danger. A lot of this has to do with ISIS. We'll get to it in a few minutes. But first, tell us about your work at MOAS. Yeah, uh, well, we're stuck with forever wars, you know, wars that don't seem to end. They just seem to go on and on. And, and Syria was a good example of constant violence against civilians, and they would start leaving uh, to go somewhere. And typically, they want to go to Europe. Um, and to get there, they weren't allowed to do it legally. They were basically told, well, fill out this form and sit and wait, which is hard to do when you're in a refugee camp. Uh, so they began to work with smugglers 
to cross both the Aegean and also the, S- the central Mediterranean. At that time, people were actually trying to get to Europe in boats. In other words, it's about a two-day sail, maybe three days from the coast of Libya. It's, it's much shorter in the Aegean, but they were also drowning. And uh, Christopher Catrimbone, who's an American based in Malta, uh, was shocked by the Lampedusa events in, in 2013, in which something like, I don't know, 300 people were literally calling, begging to be rescued, and they drowned. And uh, so he bought a Canadian fishing boat and he hired a search and rescue crew and uh, he asked me if I could help him and I'd never really worked for an NGO but my job to get him funded and to get him sort of firmly positioned in people's uh, minds so I moved over to Malta and uh, basically made Moas famous and I brought some of the world's biggest media on board the ship to actually come face to face with people drowning and dead babies and things like that and I think it shocked the world when Alan Curdy died, but it generated a lot of funds for these. Actually, Moas was the only one, but now there's about 12 out there. The, the big problem, and this is the reason why um, I don't work with Moas anymore, is that the smugglers, and I spent a lot of time in Libya with smugglers, have gamed the system so that pretty much 90 to 95% of the people that you see on these boats coming from Libya are paying passage, much like you buy a ticket on United, uh, to to force a rescue, and that means that they they know that you are allowed to rescue people in international waters, uh, and so they have to be p- crammed on these rafts and in these horrible boats, knowing that a certain percentage will drown and that there is a risk, but knowing that they'll be rescued and transported for free to Italy, where they're given a six-month you know, pass, and, and they then begin to integrate themselves into society. Now, the reason why this is important is that this is not just Europe, it's not just Syria. Most of the world, because they can reach out and talk to anybody anywhere, has full access to these smuggling networks. They advertise on Facebook with their phone numbers. They show pictures of MOAS rescuing people. They, they brag about how safe their boats are and how efficient they are. Uh, so there's an entire smuggling trafficking network that is moving people all over the world. We, we had people from the Congo crossing the Darien Gap getting to the u.s so this this is an international problem now so how do we fix that well we have to identify that criminality uh can get through any border because of the size of the money you know we we had a problem of course with with mexicans coming into america because of the jobs right the job stopped here and then we don't necessarily have that problem anymore but we have to identify and and say look this is a criminal activity for economic gain Secondly, we, we have to focus on giving refugees uh, a relief valve. In other words, speeding up and increasing the amount of help and assistance we give them so they do not create these criminal networks, or at least fuel them. Because these are the same people that are smuggling weapons and terrorists and oil and cigarettes and everything else. And this is what's funding a lot of criminal groups in North Africa and Europe. I mean, there, there's a big problem with the mafia using these people to generate money. So. As soon as you create a criminal network, it also sparks other avenues that are exploited by violent groups. So Hmm. the solution is actually quite simple. You start with understanding that this exists. And then secondly, you you create a relief valve, which doesn't allow criminal organizations to exploit these people. That's really hard to do. In the process of trying to do that, to deal with that, you have the reality that the ISIS terror organization has essentially taken advantage 
of migrant smuggling, they and other terror organizations to smuggle their own people abroad, taking advantage of the fact that many of them, uh, these terror organizations, have criminal elements or use criminal tactics, have criminal networks. So is there a way to separate out the terrorists from the migrants and the criminal activity? Yeah, so first of all, to be clear, you know, ISIS is not coming across in boatloads across the man. Secondly, uh, they did solve the problem in the Aegean by simply paying the Turks something like $6 billion to stop the Syrians from coming across in RAF. So there are solutions. ISIS, though, is a unique animal, and, and I spent uh, some time in Sirte watching them kill ISIS and, and understanding how ISIS works. And, of course, I've been with many other uh, terrorist groups. The The idea being that ISIS as a sort of a, a guerrilla group uses kidnapping, criminal activities, violence, extortion, uh, you know, protection money to survive. Once they get into an urban environment like Sirte or Mosul, Iraq, they begin, a they begin a very robust taxation policy in which all the citizens must pay a tax directly to ISIS. And it can, it can ex increase exponentially once they have roots in urban areas. So what's happening now in Libya is they have wiped out most of the Tunisians, because they mostly came from Tunisia, in Sirte, who brought their families. But now they've gone back to just harassing checkpoints and creating chaos. In Mosul and uh, the northern part of Iraq and, of course, the part of Syria, there's a much, much different problem in that some countries, like let's say Turkey, are using ISIS to create havoc. And the Kurds are also using the fight against ISIS to create a new country and, and so on and so forth. So we're now using the funding from killing ISIS to, to serve other purposes. So it becomes a very bizarre, complex problem. And ISIS will not go away. It's, it's basically they send three or four trainers, yeah. they send you some flags and artwork, and they'll pop up in the Philippines, they'll pop up in Afghanistan. Uh, because the economic model can be transferred. That's what I wanted to, to move to next. Uh, the the, the, the so-called caliphate appears to be collapsing in Syria and Iraq. Um, and there are questions now about where they will go. And some of the folks I've spoken to, including a couple of U.S. government um, national security um, officials, uh, including the National Counterterrorism Center director, Nick Rasmussen, who says that he doesn't believe they're going to have a headquarters. It's just going to be a an international amorphous organization that will pretty much be everywhere. What do you think? Uh, it's more like Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's 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 a <laughs> franchised opportunity that once you go to a down on its heels rebel group like Abu Sayyaf or the MILF, you say to them, "Look, um, we're going to give you a hundred thousand bucks." But we need you to go cut some heads off of Westerners. We need you to make a video and chant. And we need you to edit and send out, you know, tweets and every week. And then we're going to set you up in a town. And then we're going to get a percentage of what you make from that town. And we're going to send you trainers. I mean, it's a very sophisticated network. And what that means is that if you scrape the religious, you know, discussion away from it and you focus on the economics of what they're doing, Yes, you can kick them out of a city. Yes, you can kill hundreds, if not thousands, of, of fighters. But this is a regenerating model. And, and ISIS has the ability to regenerate very, very quickly with, uh, you know, bringing in foreigners at suicide bombers, you know, sending manuals over the Internet. They don't need a headquarters. As a matter of fact, this, this is our problem in warfare is that we have headquarters and that slows things down. 
So by staying modular and by staying on the internet and by using very localized decision making, once you inject that economic model into a, you know, an angry rebel group, whether it's Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab or whatever, you're essentially providing the franchising opportunity that allows them to expand quickly. So I want to go back to something you said regarding what they're actually up to. Just for clarification purposes, I think what I heard you say was they're not really into this for any religious ideology. It's a money-making deal for them. Yeah, well, on, on the philosophical side, it's a Maoist tactic to inject chaos into as many nodes as possible, right? Create create enough violence, enough explosions, stabbings, car crashings, bombings, videos, whatever, to just to spend billions of dollars. In other words, to weaken these large, slow organizations. So it's not started with any sort of religious ideology because if you follow the tenets of Islam, you don't do the horrible things they do, right? It's a cult. It's a, it's a thrill-kill cult that, that appeals to, to certain people. But my point is that from a Maoist standpoint, this is a very injectable concept that can destabilize a region very quickly. And because we have this mandate to go kill ISIS with, you know, billions of dollars, they want to bring U.S. troops, they want to bring Westerners into the conflict because it elevates the situation of the rebel group. So like in the southern Philippines, who knew that ISIS was in the southern Philippines? Well, you go on YouTube and you can actually see when the trainers arrive and you can see how badly the the terrorists are trying to mimic, you know, all the flag waving and chanting and marching around. And then now they're very good at it and they took over an entire town. So as we move forward, what should we in the U.S. expect from our experience with, with ISIS and essentially where they're headed now um, and and that is to to the to the internet essentially becoming a a so called cyber caliphate or whatever. What should the U.S. expect from that? Well, the U.S. is not necessarily equipped to to challenge small rapid groups. They're they're too slow for that. What we need to do is adopt the Russian model, which is essentially to rot it out from the inside. In other words, create an ISIS, create a a competing or poisoned brand that then deflates the significance of an ISIS cell opening up in Afghanistan or in the Philippines. And and you and the Russians have done this for years and years by essentially creating terrorist groups and funding them to confuse people and suddenly uh, set them against each other. So this is, this is really the most successful formula. And then also on the taxation base, you know, we have to be smarter in the transfer of electronic currencies and how people work with halwalas and things like that because they have no problem shipping money, sending money, collecting money. So we, we're very slow to react to how they actually work. How do you view terrorism in the world uh, as, as an enterprise in the coming years? And why the reason I say that is because um, seven years ago, Six years ago, the U.S. killed Osama bin Laden. Many people thought that might be that might provide a sea change in the in the way in which terrorism uh, imposed itself on the world. And, and many thought that essentially Al Qaeda might simply disappear. What what we got was uh, three years later, Al Qaeda 2.0 in ISIS in Iraq and Syria with essentially the destruction of this physical um, representation of, of that organization in Iraq and Syria. What do you expect next from the terrorist world? 
Well, you, you remember uh, Bin Laden was actually under house arrest. He was he was a product of Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, and, and always had been known as as a proxy for outside forces. Uh, we have to understand that these people are getting funding from private individuals and from groups in, in the in the the Middle East and also locally. So they don't just spring up on their own naturally. Secondly, the the idea of fighting back is is like the elephant and the mouse. What what these groups want to do is create so much backlash against Muslims, so much oppression against freedom of movement and freedom of religion, that they have a fertile uh, recruiting field. And and you see this in Europe now. You see this in America, where we're focusing on Muslims. You know, we we don't allow Muslims to come in here. What we should have done is leveled Pakistan. In other words, when when we had absolute 100% proof that bin Laden was a tool of the ISI and was living in Abbottabad a few miles away from ISI headquarters, we should have just flattened Pakistan's military apparatus. And, and that would have been a very severe lesson on if you want to play games with proxy forces, we will take you out. And this is what's trying, what they're trying to do with Gutter right now. They're trying to say, okay, you think you're cute by playing all sides and paying protection money, but we're not going to allow that anymore. But I, but I do believe that the idea of protection money is what starts these groups. They, they make threats against royal families, against groups, and they basically pay them off not to stage terrorist events. And, and the world is changing very quickly because now those groups are now fighting wars in Yemen against Iran. So even taking out Iran, I don't think, is going to stop the promotion of violent acts by individual groups because it's a very popular tool used in, in Central Asia and South Asia. So my, my lesson to everyone is stop looking at the puppet, start looking at the puppet master. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this is that wars have started for very small things or could start for very small things these days. But mm -hmm. that tactic that you suggest the U.S. should have taken or used against Pakistan, you, you suggest they should use that now. Well, let me be clear about this. You know, Pakistan has funded numerous terrorist groups. It's part of their, you know, proxy war against India, making themselves a poison pill. Uh, they have funded numerous groups that have murdered hundreds of American soldiers and citizens. Uh, I can take you through the whole 9-11. I can take you through all kinds of other terrorist events in which Pakistan facilitating the camps, you know, where bin Laden taught and recruited everybody from John Walker Lynn to, uh, you know, Ramzi Yusuf has been the wellspring of violent attacks against uh, Americans and, and other civilized people. And I'm just saying that we did not go up against Pakistan because they're a nuclear country. And so we, the State Department decided, okay, we're not going to poke the bear. We need them. Uh, what we'll do is we'll focus our warring efforts in Afghanistan. But in actual fact, the, the impetus for much of the violence in Afghanistan comes from Pakistan. And, and, and it's so glaringly obvious. I spent some time with an anti-terrorism unit in Kabul. You remember the hospital attack where they went in and killed over 80 people in a military hospital in Kabul. You know, they had the complete dossiers on the people and the colonel and the ISI who trained them and where, what villages they were from. I mean, the, the evidence is irrefutable. So my point is this. America does do things well when it's in its own lane. In other words, when we use the tools that we know how to use, special forces, close air support, strikes, things like that. We're not that good at focusing on individuals and trying to play whack-a-mole by saying, oh, where's bin Laden? You know, where's Zawahiri? Where are all these people? We, we can cut the Gordian knot is what I'm saying mm -hmm. by taking a much wider uh, simplistic view of, of why terrorism has risen so quickly. 
And America's never been shy about pragmatism either, have we? Well, we, we've done punitive expeditions into Mexico. You know, it, it, it's actually quite normal for a Western country once uh, its ambassador was killed in Benghazi or something to mount a punitive expedition. There's a lot of fanfare and trumpets blowing where they just were coming in. We're going to wipe out all your assets and then we're going to leave and don't do it again. So, so we might have to return to what Eric Prince is sort of touting as the East India Company type of doing business, except that his grasp of history is not complex enough to understand how it should be done. And if that name, Eric Prince, sounds familiar to you, it's because he's the guy that owned Blackwater. And you may remember, Blackwater was an infamous contractor that was involved in the Iraq War. Robert Young Pelton, you know Eric Prince very well. You've been involved with him. What is this new idea that he has? That he's 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 been out there for a while pitching private armies and Somalia and, 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 and Sudan, but he's at it again. So what's the situation behind this private army concept of his he's pitching? Yeah, so Eric, he had a sort of a fallout inside his company, which is called Frontier Services Group, which is a, a Chinese stock-listed company in Hong Kong. And his people got burned because he was pitching the idea of using, you know, the air tractors, the light combat aircraft. Yeah. Uh, he bought a chunk of a company called Airborne Technologies. He had a, uh, a cutout create another company called Lassa, which is a Bulgarian company. And he started flogging these uh, air tractors that were modified with hard points so you could drop bombs and smart munitions on rebels. And he then began pitching this idea of small 1,700-man armies in places like Libya, where he was promoting the idea of using armed air tractors to prevent migrants uh, from crossing the border. Uh, he also did this in South Sudan under the guise of pipeline surveillance. And he's done this in, in numerous places where he thinks, for example, like fighting Boko Haram, where he thinks he can make an impact on a uh, rebel group or a problem using mercenaries and short sort of extreme violence to get these things done. And, of course, the State Department is mostly apoplectic when they when they find out about these things, and they're usually leaked to the media, and uh, that's where we first hear about them. Well, you know, Robert Young Pelton, it's been fascinating to talk to you about a range of things today. As always, you're a wealth of knowledge and a source of excitement when it comes to journalistic exploits and certainly the understanding of what's going on around the world. Before I let you go today, Joseph Coney, you're working on something. I know you can't say a whole lot, but tell us what you can. I've, I've been following uh, the attempts to find Joseph Coney. Uh, and tell us, I guess tell our audience who Joseph Coney is, briefly. Uh, Joseph Coney is the creator of the Lord's uh, Resistance Army and also a, a, a wanted person for the ICC and, of course, in, in the U.S. Uh, as, as a terrorist leader. He's one of the few Christian uh, groups that is considered a terrorist group. And uh, we went through the whole you know, Coney 2012 and Obama, we spent $800 million looking for Coney. And uh, I, I just for fun, I, I did this uh, crowdfunder saying, hey, you know, I'll go get Joseph Coney. It's like, it's no big deal. I know where he is. <laughs> and uh, people laughed at it. I said, okay, fine. So do you so, really? Uh, you know where he is? Yeah, well, my, my, my people, I, I won't say who they are. 
um, are with Kony's bodyguards in a place north of South Sudan. And it's also full of Boko Haram and it's also full of Janjaweed and ISIS. And it's, it's kind of like that bar scene in Mar Moss Eisley. And uh, Kony flies in by helicopter, most likely from Khartoum. He's probably at a military hospital in Khartoum. Uh, getting treatment, and he flies in to pay his people. Now, we've had a discussion as of a month ago saying, yeah, sure, we, we don't mind doing the interview. We're just going to kidnap your people and hold them, and then we'll hold you until Coney gets back on a helicopter and leaves. And I said, fine, I'm okay with that. Uh, but my point is is that, you know, this has but been wait, my history of tracking down. Hold on a second. <laughs> as everybody else that's looking for Coney, um, do they know this as well? Well, I don't know. I don't hang out with those people. I mean, we had a huge military unit trying to work with South Sudanese, Congolese, you know, troops flying helicopters, dropping leaflets and uh, running all over the jungle. Uh, but they aren't legally allowed to go into Sudan. You know, Kony's mm -hmm. always been protected by Khartoum. But yeah. I just bumped into Kony. It was 1996 and he was on the other side of the lines I was on, along with some of bin Laden's people attacking the SPLA. So my point is, is that Coney is not a mystery to the people that know him. He's only a mystery if you don't know where he is. Fascinating. This is, again, a reason why tuning in and following Robert Young Pelton is very important. Thank you again. Well, I would suggest, let me just give you one little plug. So just Google Saving South Sudan on Vice Magazine. That was part one of Finding Coney, in which I literally tracked down React Mashar, the vice president of South Sudan, who's hiding in the jungle, because he was the last man to see Joseph Coney alive. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not rocket science hunting people down. It's just methodical and painstaking. So last thing, if the U.S. wanted him, they could have gotten him. Yeah, they don't have any uplift. I've, I've told them multiple times. I said, look, if you really, really want to get Coney, uh, you might as well also get Bashir, who's also got an ICC warrant on him, and he lives in Khartoum too. Uh, but they just shy away. And, and this is my whole book, my whole new book, which is coming out next year. It's called Finding Coney. It's about why we can't figure things out in Africa. And and for many, many years, I've always been baffled why we spend so much time looking all around the edges, but we don't go straight into the center. This is the reason why uh, every now and then I try to keep, catch up with Robert Young Pelton, because he knows things. He knows people. <laughs> Robert, thanks again. Thanks again for uh, hooking up with us today. We appreciate your time. Thanks, JJ. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, I'm around, JJ. All right. Bye -bye. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. You can also let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. The new Podcast One app is here. There's no other podcast app like this one. 
Download it in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows. You can get more content for Target USA. You can find articles, social media, episodes. You can make playlists. There's so much you can do. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans because we have our own little community there. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scenes photos, get 360 video, or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a 1,000 videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio. Really cool. So many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening and much, much more. So be sure to download the new Podcast One app. Hey, have you heard? Podcast One has a whole bunch of awesome new shows filled with big names that are waiting for you on our brand new amazing app. This one's a game changer. There's Norman Lear talking to Amy Poehler, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Charles Barkley. Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with Brian Cranston, Josh Gad, and soon Neil Patrick Harris. Nice. OC Real Housewife, Heather Dubrow's World, Lady Gang's Three Mimosa Podcast with Leah Michelle, Nelly Furtado, L. King, and more. Plus every episode of The Adam Carolla Show, Dan Patrick, and Rich Eisen. And if you like what happens in the ring, we've got Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chael Sonnen, and a whole bunch more. So download our one-of-a-kind new app and see for yourself. Go to the App Store, Google Play, or download it now at podcast1.com.